On today's episode, we have a special guest, John Cahan. John was the Vice President and Chief Data Analytics Officer at Microsoft, now holds an emeritus position. He's also the founder and chairman of the board of the Aaron Matthew Sids Research Foundation of Seattle Children's. John's work, along with that of Seattle Children's, has been pivotal in pushing forward the research and understanding of sudden infant death syndrome and understanding ways that we can predict and prevent this devastating condition from ever happening again. John and his team bring a unique perspective to basic scientific research by taking data analytics and data science strategies and incorporating it into a basic science problem in order to create a truly translational program that goes all the way from the bench to the bedside so that there's a better understanding of the underlying etiologies of sudden infant death syndrome and implementing it into translatable ways that it can actually be used to help fulfill his life mission of making sure that no parent ever experiences the loss of a child ever again. So with that, let's jump into the episode. John, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to come. Welcome to the Neural Network. So, John, you're uh, you're wearing a lot of hats. You know, I you know I went to go find a little background thing, and and your LinkedIn page, you know, it has a, a bunch of different positions of board member. Um, and of course, the reason that I I wanted to talk to you today and have a discussion was about a lot of your work focused in on on sudden infant death syndrome. Is, is so? Is the position the chief data analytics officer emeritus? Now? Yes, yes. I retired yes. from Microsoft a year and a half ago. Um, my brother came up with that fancy term. He's in academia, so we use it. <laughs> That's yeah, the the mixture with the the emeritus professor coming in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so John, how did you get involved in the world of sudden infant death syndrome? Or I guess even to take a step back, um, I guess, you know, for for the general audience, how would we define, you know, sudden infant death syndrome and how did you get involved with, you know, trying to come up with ways in order to create programs to solve some of the problems that are going on around it? Uh, sure. So first of all, uh, sudden infant death syndrome is the leading cause of death one month to one year old in the United States. Um, frankly, it's probably the leading cause of death in all developed countries in the world, but we don't uh, necessarily measure it and measure it effectively around the world. Um, roughly 3,200 infants die of what's known as SIDS. Um, the reality is uh, it's probably much higher than that because it's in a category of sudden unexplained infant death or suid uh, in the category itself. And children die as little as a few days old uh, to a day old, um, all the way up to 14 or 15 years old in another category called sudden unexplained death in a child. Um, so how do I know all about this and why do I know a lot about this? Uh, unfortunately, I know about it because I know about it firsthand. Uh, roughly 21 years ago, um, I had uh, my first and only son um, who was born uh, right here in Seattle, Washington. Like my other three children, was born healthy and uh, crying and like a normal baby, uh, but a few days later died unexplained, um, which was our first experience with what was labeled as SIDS or sudden, in, uh, sudden uh, in infant death syndrome. Um, and, um, and I did like what other parents did, which is, uh, you hold your other kids, you try to figure out answers and there was no answers. Um, you give to charities. Um, uh, in this case we gave to research cause I was a researcher. That's what I did for a living. Sure. Um, and, uh, and we gave to Seattle children's who took care of not just Aaron, my son, but also my other children and my family. So then the, what I, what I find fascinating about not only, you know, not, not, not only, of course, you know, my condolences to the, the loss, uh, uh, of your son, Aaron, right? That's correct. And, um, you know, but, but 
what was fascinating to me is especially, you know, so I've always been on with my research sort of on the outskirts of the sudden infant death syndrome research because I study neuromodulation. And so understanding the neuromodulators is something that's oftentimes involved with understanding some of the etiologies or some of the mechanisms that might lead to the eventual compromise in the kids that have sudden infant death syndrome. But really, it becomes a very translational problem, like a true translational type of, of problem that, that, the, that I've, that, you know, I, I, I guess what's the best way to put it. I admire the way that you've taken the approach of creating a program that is in fact truly translational, because when we talk about doing basic research, you know, we talk about understanding certain mechanisms in the brain, and then we publish a paper and we leave it at that. And then we hope that someone picks it up and is able to bring it into a cure. And so with the, you know, with the, with the Aaron Matthews uh, foundation that you've started and, and have been running and have been bringing in together, you know, the teams of Seattle children's and Microsoft and the data analytics and being able to bring together a problem to say, Hey, look, we have teams that can do the basic research and we have data teams that can curate data of large databases and try to understand a public health issue, but then are also focused on bringing it into how can we actually create ways in order to prevent it from occurring. And so, you know, what, what does it go into when you're trying to create a foundation? Because, you know, the business world is completely outside of my wheelhouse. It's not something that they teach you, you know, during your graduate studies. And so how did that, you know, sort of come to be to say, you know, let, let's launch a translational campaign type thing. Well, um, I think it's, it's important to understand. Let's fast forward about um, seven years ago. So I told you about 21 years ago, yeah. seven years ago. Um, we were doing like everyone else. We raise money. You give it to a charity. In this case, we gave it to uh, a SIDS research fund at Seattle Children's. Um, but then one miracle happened, which is my head of data science, a uh, gentleman by the name Juan Lavista Ferris, um, met with Dr. Nino Ramirez um, and was born a worldwide effort to try to attack SIDS. And it gets right to the heart of what you're describing, which is we knew nothing about medical research or epidemiology or physiology or any of the work that was going on at the hospital. But we do know a lot about data. Give us data and we'll tell you the correlations, the causations, the connection points, the data points, et cetera. And uh, he pointed us to a data set that the CDC put together on every um, birth and death that occurs in the United States over the last 20 years. But no epidemiologist really uses it in any kind of scale or no researcher in that space because they don't, they don't do large scale data. That's what my folks do. And so he pulled it down and all of a sudden, all of the theories and thought processes that were occurring by world-class researchers, not just at Seattle Children's, yeah. but as far away as New Zealand and, and the UK and Norway and other places in the world in Boston Children's. All of a sudden, you could see their research that was occurring in mice and in children and in all the pieces in the CDC data. And you could see things that were different and were not the same, et cetera. And so this marrying of two disciplines, and in some ways, many disciplines, epidemiology, physiology, uh, behavioral change, which was a component of it, and how you uh, work with parents on changing things, um, and medical science with data science became a reality. And I sat down when I came back, like this wasn't me, this is truly a miracle. You take 
all of these professions, you can put them together with the diversity of talent and you start uncovering things that you either knew before and you could validate or new things. And you fast forward to where we are today and it's really quite a miracle. We now understand 26% of all SIDS deaths in the United States. This is a disease that goes back thousand years. It's in the scriptures um, that talk about parents and their children dying unexplained. And it really hadn't changed the level of children dying since the mid seventies when smoking slowed down in the United States and other countries. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the combination and the power of diversity. And by the way, it's the same thing I did at Microsoft. I brought together people that were experts, not just in data science, but in different elements of it. People that understood everything from uh, looking at natural language research. Now you're talking about large language models in data science and AI and basic counting and statistics and image recognition um, and using the power of large scale compute and data to be able to understand and to be able to attack different problems. And so we now have a team, not just at Seattle Children's and Microsoft, but from all over the world. In fact, we just recently held our sixth annual, and my goal is not to do this every year, but to do it for a certain amount of years and then shut this down because we understand this particular area. But our sixth annual conference and summit where we bring researchers together with the data scientists and look at all the research going on around the world. And what's good is that the the younger, newer generation of researchers are now filling in. They see the power of what can be done and the power of change. And we had a record number of attendees, over 130 attendees occurred from over 26 uh, different countries and states across the world to be able to attack this problem. So diversity matters. Diversity of skills matter yeah. uh, in what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a, a fantastic conference. Obviously, I, w- I was there, um, and, and you know, to see the different minds come together. Is it, it you know when you're putting together a data science team that's going after, let's say, a specific biomedical problem? Is it sometimes difficult to? Um, it is sometimes difficult to sort of hone in on a certain physiological process without a physiological background, or is it almost better? You know, because sometimes we, you know, when we deal with with data scientists from a, like a statistics standpoint or something like that, oftentimes it gives us sort of new hypotheses, new clues that we didn't even think about because we were so focused on our preconceived notions of the problem rather than just looking at where the data is actually going. And so does it go, you know, both ways or how does that sort of play um, into it? I would say it's good, bad, and indifferent. Um, it's never perfect. Um, and so it depends on the openness of the people. Um, that are involved. The reality is um, we don't do any data science work without some medical researcher that's an expert in the space. I mean, it would be foolish to do that. It would be like, you know, trying to understand somebody's uh, profession without any education. That doesn't make any sense. Um, But we certainly can help them validate or invalidate their theories, and we can take their insights and put them into large-scale data and be able to prove or disprove some of the work that's occurring. And so we've been lucky. I mean, let me tell you, there was some work that I'd like it to get out of the lab and published, but it just doesn't get there because I can't get the teams to agree. And they they debate over and over again about the different techniques and whether or not one or the other works. But in the end, I believe that um, if you take really, really smart people and they come in with the right attitudes and the right Um, combination of things, you actually make one plus one equals three. And I've seen that across the board. I mean, research that had been going on for years, all of a sudden, 
you add in a new level of skill and the researchers that are involved are open to that and they're willing to help the, the data scientists that are not experts in the space understand the patterns and the things that are occurring and to be able to challenge each other, you get better answers that come out the other way. And that's why, you know, since the 70s, this hasn't changed, but now all of a sudden you're seeing large scale amounts of researchers coming here because people are willing to work together on these problems together. Um, and they still debate it from across the board and, you know, all the way through to the latest work that's occurring in genomic, uh, genomics, because for a long period of time, people thought there were genetic um, disorders in this space, but nobody could prove it because there was no data scientist that could handle the kind of large scale um, work on this. And even in some cases, the small amounts of data that you have in this work, because you're talking about a very small amount in the population to be able to understand things. And now all of a sudden we're being able to open that up directly. So it's not an easy answer. It takes the right players to work together um, and, uh, and to challenge each other to get a better answer. Yeah. Do you, so, so as a, uh, someone that specializes in, in data, I, you know, I've always had this sort of notion now, especially with some of the, the large language models coming out that we have access to and things like that. Um, you, you know, you mentioned about sometimes within the pipeline of there being the interactions, sometimes the crux can be at that publication phase. And certainly even with our basic science, we have a lot of interesting information that we might not just be able to publish because it doesn't fit perfectly within a certain story, you know, that we have. But it is a very important piece of data that we wish, you know, we could get out. And you can certainly get it out in presentations and things like that. But do you see as, you know, we move forward into more of these sort of, um, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about large language models that have access to the internet, especially now, being able to access certain databases, you know, ChatGPT now has the the Wolfram plugin, you know, where you're able to just go straight into databases. Um, do you see that changing up perhaps some of the architecture of how we we view scientific publishing in the future? Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, I'm not an expert in that space. I'm really the wrong person to ask this question to. I'm, yeah, I, I'm I am very impatient as a business leader, and so the yeah. processes that I watch, um, I'm like, let's just get it out already and let's people debate it. But I will say that the science community has done a good job of self-policing itself and putting out quality work. And I think that's necessary. I mean, as a scientist, I look at it and I say it's necessary. In the same hand, speed is what's going to matter. And you're dead right. Like all of a sudden, you're opening up large scale data and the ability to even code using low code or no code environments in what we're trying to do in, in what we're enabling with things like ChatGPT4. Um, and even relevance models when you add in Bing to that um, directly. So you're not just going after unscientific sources. And now you're going to get insights that are really publishable in a lot of respects, as you're describing. And so what is that going to do to your profession? I think it'll transform it. I think things will happen a lot faster. And I think people are going to have to get comfortable with the speed by which that's going to operate. And that's a good thing. I think it's good. And it's good for everyone to what I call climb the value chain. Because what used to take weeks and months to sit down and write and edit will not ne be necessary anymore. I mean, you'll be able to go to a, a tool and say, give me all the sources on SIDS so that I can look at serotonin in the brain because I need to put 20 different sources here. We're talking right now, I'm working with the Novartis Foundation, for example, on cardiovascular disease and the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation on 
on brain health. And they were all doing literature reviews at large scale. And how do you do literature reviews today? It's all manual. And you're like looking through hundreds and hundreds of pieces of literature. And why do you do literature reviews? You do it in many cases just to cite it for your papers that you're publishing. Well, imagine now you don't need to do that anymore. You take all your private data and you take all the public data that you have access to in front and behind firewalls. And you just say, give me all the sources that are associated with this. And certainly you have to check it because they make mistakes, these algorithms. But the speed by which that's going to operate and the ability to publish is going to be way faster than what we're doing today. So I'm a huge fan of it. I, I get that there is what they call hallucinations in the in my pronunciation's a little off, but in the in the algorithms and frankly just dead on mistakes, um, but not any more than a human would make. And uh, and things have to be checked and sources have to be checked. Uh, as I indicated, I'm a big fan of the Bing algorithm, which is ChatGPT four because it gives you the links to the sources that it came from. It's not just ChatGPT four and then you get an answer and you have to trust where it came from. And that will help researchers uh, in the work that they're trying to do, publish it a better way with higher quality. Yeah, I, I've been, uh, just like you said, so, you know, I'm putting together a couple different papers right now. And if I, you know, a lot of times when you write the paper, you just type everything up. And then at the end, you go, okay, now I have to find something that, you know, I know this is true, but I just have to find a reference for it. And I can just, you know, copy, paste it into there and say, find a reference that supports this. And it'll give you, you know, five. And then you just got to quick check them. And it takes like, you know, two minutes rather than something that used to take hours or, or what I've been leveraging lately is I've been having sort of the inception type of model where I've, where I, you know, I tell it, okay, chat GPT, uh, make a humanized version of yourself and plop it into a think tank with a scientist, a politician, uh, a lawmaker, a grant writer, and a data scientist and evaluate the pros and the cons of this specific games page. And it's, you know, it, it puts all these things in here and then it comes out with certain, scripts there are prompts you know that it would that would be helpful to strengthen your application if it were to talk to itself and so that's sort of been a a fun little task to critique yourself but you can go down a rabbit hole that's that's for sure um but with with having access to a lot of having access to a large plethora of data whether it be genomic physiologic behavioral things like that when it when it's applied directly towards a problem like SIDS, because SIDS is, is something that is, it could be multifactorial in, in, in the nature. I mean, obviously the, the nature of the, the condition itself is that we don't know why the infant passed, that you know, we've ruled out everything else. And so it's put into a certain category of sudden infant death syndrome. And with this, you know, one of the things that I've always wondered about is, let's say that we have a very, uh, or a varied phenotype or a varied genetic type of um, underlying cause for all of the the children that get placed into the sudden infant death syndrome. And as we start to understand more and more diseases, is the incidence of sudden infant death syndrome, um, well, I guess, it, it, you know, by nature of the more that we understand about certain deaths, the more the, the, the number is going to go down, right? Because then we start to have categorizations for them. Right. Uh, but when we have access to um, data, a lot of that relies on information that has been already known. And so, you know, how do we how do we take these large data sets that we have and use it to have foresight into where we should be going, if that makes yeah. sense? Yeah, no, it does. And the, what you're describing has um, it's kind of a two edged sword. 
The good news is you're breaking the problem down. Um, and as most researchers that work in this space recognize pretty early on that SIDS or SUID or it's not one thing. There's no way it's one thing. And in fact, our researchers have proven that children that die within the first day do not die of the same things that children that die between one day and are older. And in fact, that very fact, while the public may not understand the importance of that as a researcher, that's a massive finding. You've basically taken a large population and broken it into two so you can look at it from different ways in the way you're doing it. So that's a good thing from a research perspective. From a fundraising perspective and trying to get people to focus on it is a problem because now all of a sudden you go, oh, it's not such a big thing anymore. And so they stop looking at it. But I'll tell you all a little secret. We're actually not trying to solve SIDS. What are we really trying to do? We're trying to improve infant mortality. Because when you shrink the unknown, you increase the known, and then you can do things that you can't, that you couldn't do before. So if you know a child didn't die of this unknown cause, but they died of some epileptic condition, as an example, or some brain malfunction that you didn't know before, and there were children in there, then you can test for that, hopefully in advance, and do something about it, and ultimately improve infant mortality. And so while we call it the Aaron Matthews SIDS Research Foundation of Seattle Children's, the reality is what Dr. Nina Ramirez and I have been doing for the last couple of years is looking at the bigger problem of infant mortality and recognizing that if we build the first infant genome database ever um, of SIDS, and then we look at the unknown of those children and break those children down and continue to break those children down into children of known and unknown, and shrink the category of unknown, we will get to a point where we know every single possible disease or syndrome that a child could has risks of. They could be tested for that, hopefully in an amniocentesis kind of stage, or even before parents get pregnant, um, and be able to prevent that in the future. And so I think that's the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do, is just break this problem down. Because my personal goal in life is to ensure that no parent ever experiences the loss of a child again, not just from SIDS, but from anything. Let me tell you firsthand, excuse me, as a parent who lost his only son to SIDS, this is horrific. It doesn't just impact you or me. It doesn't just impact my wife and my children. It impacts my parents. It impacts all of our children and our children's children are having children. I have a granddaughter right now, and every night my daughter wakes up and she puts an outlet sock on. She doesn't know whether it means anything. She listens to that child every night and makes sure the child's on its back. And she does everything that I tell her to do and more to make sure that that child doesn't die of an unknown cause. Is she doing it all right? Do we know if that child has high risks? We don't know yet. And that's what we're trying to ultimately do is to make sure that they can sleep at night. They don't have to worry about their children when they put them to bed. You you led right into um, where I I was kind of going to go from there with sudden, you know, as an example, with sudden unexpected death in epilepsy or SUDEP, which is obviously within the ring of the, the SIDS research, SUDEP is sometimes very closely related. You know, the difference being that that sudden unexpected death and and epilepsy, there's sort of a known cause as to when the death is occurring, you know, which which leads it to a different sort of categorization than that of SIDS because SIDS, you know, we don't know exactly 
when it happens or, or when they what the event was versus at least we have a an epileptic time frame in a post-ictal period that we know when a per, you know a child from epilepsy has has passed and you know with the with the approach of curating these these data sets and understanding what it is that may be predictive or, or essentially you know what might be a, a viable biomarker to say that there is or there is not a higher risk of an infant um, succumbing to the condition of SIDS when you put that forward into the epileptic type of, of position, do you see it to be a similar type of framework where it's going to be more focused on us finding a predictive value or a predictive um, factor that might be uh, underlying or, or not even underlying, but you know, gives us an idea that we should be extra vigilant about this infant versus that of, you know, if we can prevent the epilepsy from even occurring in the first place, then the likelihood of them dying from that is, is almost zero versus that of we should just keep a closer eye on them. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think ultimately um, prediction is, is super powerful. I mean, if we can put children in categories of risk factors and understand that and then can take action before they run into that state, um, of course, that's more valuable than uh, than not putting it. But those categories have to be done very carefully. Uh, let me just kind of highlight this with a point. Uh, if you look at the graphs of SUID and the underlying factors of SUID when that was created, and you look at the fact that it looks like SIDS is going down, but accidental death is going up, and they, they correlate perfectly. And if you take a bunch of autopsies of children that died of accidental death in a crib, and you put that and you give those without that name to a bunch of uh, medical examiners or, or, um, or coroners, and you ask them to categorize the children, they'll miscategorize it, or they'll categorize it differently in many cases than what the original cause of death was. And so what that proves to me is that that categorization was not done with precision. And so it looks like SIDS is coming down, but when you add the two categories together, nothing is happening within uh -huh. that. And so you have to be careful in the way you categorize things. You have to make sure that the categories are done, not just with precision, but they're done for the purposes of what you're trying to accomplish. And you're, in the example you gave, you're trying to say, well, if I know that a child has got epilepsy and that, that could lead to death, and I can predict that in advance, that's super valuable. I want to know that. And so I want to categorize a child into that. You may also categorize that same child into other areas that have other risk factors. Um, you know, my personal goal in life, and I, as I've learned out of this, is to really open up data for societal good within the realms of privacy and diversity and transparency that we should all have with what's occurring and security for that matter. But the more we open up data, the more we get researchers to work together and we define these categories very carefully, the more we will break these problems down that we have in society today. It's the reason that I worked um, over both the Trump administration and the Biden administration um, to help pass what is known as the Scarlet Sunshine Act, which was named after a child that done it, died of sudden unexplained death in a child, where for the first time, the U.S. government in over 50 years has funded roughly $40 million of data cleanup, really, when you get underneath it, an education uh -huh. of parents at a state level. Why? because that data feeds all the research we're talking about. That CDC database is all based on a bunch of uh, medical examiners and, um, and coroners that in many cases are not trained in large-scale data. And they will quickly label a death 
for whatever reason differently each time. And that must be done with precision. It must be done um, with repetition so that if one medical examiner looks at it and another looks at it, regardless of the state or the county, it's exactly the same cause of death. And so that when it rolls up and it rolls into that big CDC database and researchers like you and Dr. Ramirez and others can see that same data, not just in what's self-reported by these medical examiners, but they can see it in genomics and they can see it in epidemiology and physiology and even behavioral change for that matter. They can see the exact same patterns that are occurring. And so it's a it's an effort in cleaning up data at a large scale across the United States. And I'm thrilled that both um, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats and the independents, 100% bipartisan support, you think about that in today's times, in both administrations, not only approved this bill, but they um, approved it with uh, and they funded it in both administrations. And for the first time ever, we're making wow. progress against this. That's incredible. I mean, to get them to, to agree on anything, let alone. <laughs> it's incredible. But so so with the um, so, so basically, you know, you, you talk about standardization of the categorization of of infant death. You know, um, it was interesting when I when I did run that little think tank on because I ran it through sudden infant death syndrome and I said, you know, come up with what you think are the limiting factors right now as to pushing forward some of the progress that's going forward to to level the curve. You know, and I and I had a politician in there and I had, you know, everything that I could, th you know, basically the whole the whole city, just a little think tank. And one of the things that it came up with was education. And it actually was interesting that it did mention that. And, and of course, it's something that comes up and it came up at the conference, um, as it does a, a couple of years in a row of, of when, we, when we're going to um, categorize the cause of death from a coroner's office um, or from a, you know, if there's a coroner investigation or an autopsy of the infant, there's often not necessarily a standardization of what is to be categorized and what is not, you know, what is included and what is missed. And oftentimes that comes down to the education of the, who's doing the, the autopsy. And so are there any sort of pushes that are being put in place to offer uh, a standardized type of education to those that are com completing the autopsies? Yeah. I mean, that in effect is really at the heart of the Scholar of Sunshine Act. It's to fund the states. I mean, we have this I mean, you know, interesting government, which is, you know, you don't do things centrally. It's got to be done at the state level and the county level and what you do. You fund them, you enable them, and then you, and you help them move forward. But there are a lot of grassroots efforts to ensure that um, this education is occurring. Um, there's a wonderful woman by the name of um, uh, Deborah Robinson, who frankly introduced me to everybody in the SIDS community when I first started getting involved here. In fact, she texted me last night and I didn't call her back. Um, but I will. Um, and she is like, she just, you know, she lives and breathes this to make sure that people are educated in that space. And she tries to educate not just the coroners and the medical examiners, but the first responders, which are a piece of the pie because oh, yeah. the first responders get there and, you know, they're trying to do their best. They're trying to make sure that there's no, you know, malintent that occurred. They're trying to make sure that there's clarity, that they're trying to make sure that the death scene is preserved as best as possible. Um, but that by itself can screw up data. It can scare people. It can, it can slant what ultimately occurs um, and is written down on paper um, by the medical examiner and the coroner in the end. And so 
yes, there are efforts that occur, you know, in the world that I live in, I wish it was more top down. I think what you're implying was like, wouldn't it be great if the US government had standards? But you know, as I learned, even in COVID, and I was heavily involved in COVID from the White House, all the way through many of the governors across the United States with the CDC and NIH, just trying to figure out how many cases there were in the US and things like that. I learned very quickly that the power is actually the closer you get to the individuals involved. It's not at the federal government level. It's not even at the state or the county level. It's really, really down low in the United States. It's the beauty of this country. It allows individuals to do things that you couldn't do otherwise. But it also is a bit of a problem because when you want to create standardization and you really want quality of data, you have to do it through two factors. And the good news is we can do it through two. One is what we've been talking about, which is education. The other side of the equation is that's the beauty of data science. We can see the noise in the data. Like those two curves that I described earlier, it didn't take like hardcore data science to look at that and a little bit of education to recognize that SUID hasn't changed for God's sake. Anybody can look at this and realize it, but then you prove it in experiments. You say, okay, how good is the underlying data? And most research today actually does not occur at the SIDS level um, in the CDC data, they do it at the sewage level because they know it's noise. They know the data that's collected is noise. And it's kind of irrelevant when you really get down to it. The child died, for God's sake. Now we need to figure out why did that child, why, why were they susceptible and why did they die? Um, as many really uh, long-term researchers have said here, a child even that's put on their stomach, um, 99 out of 100 times when they go to bed, they wake up in the morning. The question is, why does some children not wake up in the morning? Putting a child on their back does not prevent SIDS. I mean, that's an important factor for people to understand. It just reduces the risk. It means that there's something biological that that child is more susceptible in that prone position than a child that is put on, um, uh, than another child in that space. And so, you know, data does create noise. And even the perfect education um, will uh, humans have debates. And so we need to use science. We need to run experiments. We need to make sure that we're looking at data and understanding the imperfections in it. And we shouldn't be afraid when there is common sense to be able to publish and put things out either. I mean, we got to that earlier, like I am super impatient, but I also get put very carefully from really good researchers that have caused real stirs by publishing things too early to sure. say, slow down, make sure you do it right. Um, and so uh, there are, there, we have the right checks and balances in my opinion, um, but we also don't move fast enough a lot of times in really telling the story that's necessary uh, on the progress and the things that are occurring. Yeah, I, I, I've actually been pleasantly surprised again, playing with some of the, the automated data things that are coming out, especially like at a rapid pace. Now it's like every time you open up the browser, it's like, here's another plugin that can help you do some autonomous data analysis. Um, and I've been, you know, Im importing just a, a couple of breathing traces from some of the, the things that I've been recording, you know, because I, I study the, the neural control of breathing. And I said, you know, this is a breathing trace when it goes up, when there's a deflection, that's an inspiration. When it goes down, that's a expiration. Tell me what you can figure out about this breath. And it'll even come up and it'll say, well, it looks like around 15 minutes, you may have added a drug or changed the condition. And it's like, that's kind of cool. You know, so it can sort of figure out some of those things. And, and when it comes to the 
sort of scrubbing of the data um, to put, let's say, like a quality type of index into some of those data things. I, I've been surprised, you know, how good some of those things really are at, at being able to take these data sets and saying, you know, there's something that's not right about this one. And there's something that's that is, you know, good about about this one. Um, and, you know, so so I guess bringing that in, you know, when we talk about creating correlations or creating, you know, correlations that may give us causal factors to test for causations in SIDS. Um, you know, a lot of the animal models, whether it be genetic knockout models where we found a genetic factor and then we knocked it out and we did that. And of course it, you know, it might lead to an increased risk of death under certain conditions, sort of testing that triple risk model that's come out before and things like that. But when you, when you go to implement that into a translational cure, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the translational spectrum of biomedical research. I did one of my PhDs in physiology and another one in clinical and translational science. So how do you actually bring that basic science to a, a clinical cure is, is the behavioral aspects, you know, you talked about the back to sleep campaign where having a child sleep on their back reduces the risk of sudden infant death syndrome quite a lot. And that, that, you know, that's a behavioral change that can take place irrespective of a common genetic factor. And so, you know, how do we take what we know physiologically and genetically and then be able to actually implement or create um, certain products or certain behavioral aspects that we can educate towards? You know, is it is it more focused on we have a we have an infant that is at high risk? You know, that's one part of the problem. And then the second problem is now how do we take that high risk infant and actually make them less susceptible within the sleeping condition? Yeah, it's, you know, there's a science just to behavioral change. And there are yeah. researchers um, that just focus on that. And they do lots of research. Like, if we tell a parent to do this, will they do it? Do they do it? Are they doing it at the right scale? Are they doing it the right way? Is it tied to the data science or the research that was published associated with it? And, um, and we got to respect that that in itself is a set of science that is hard to do. And, um, and we need to maybe be able to, be able to educate. And on top of that, there is no um, perfect answer to that. I mean, we talked about it earlier, like putting a child on their back dramatically reduces the risk of SIDS. It doesn't stop it. And how do you make sure that the parent understands that subtle but very important difference? I mean, that is a very important factor. Like this is not a panacea. Um, and so it's important, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem that's associated with it. If you put a child, for example, in the neo-intensive care, guess what? It reduces the, the infant rate of SIDS dramatically because they're monitored all the time. Right. So should we put all children in the neo-intensive care? The answer, of course, is no, because it's just too expensive. Uh, but if you were the parent that has the one child that dies of SIDS, you'd be like, I don't care what it costs. Put my child in the neo-intensive care. And so um, I think what you're describing is it's, it's hard, you know, each element. And that's why I think these things are all interconnected. I mean, you know, my ultimate vision is, is that, you know, uh, you would test parents before they even got pregnant, um, just like you do today for, um, for genetic disorders. And you would say, okay, these are all the factors that your, your child, if you have a child would be at risk for. Then when the parents got pregnant, you would test again when the child was born. You would test again. You would do this at very inexpensive rates. And then you would put in place, you know, precision medicine and precision behaviors, which are components of that, 
to ensure that child lives a healthy, long life, um, which in a lot of ways is what we're trying to do across the spectrum. I mean, this is a factor that might be astonishing to your folks. While 3,200 children roughly die of SIDS in the United States, roughly 56,000 children die before birth in the United Mm -hmm. States a year. I mean, that's a lot of children that die way more than that. I'm not sure that's any different in the biological makeup than a child that dies of SIDS. We don't know that. And in fact, I would bet that many of those children are dying of very similar things. They're just dying earlier in the, in the process. I mean, birth is a miracle. I mean, it's an amazing miracle. I mean, how any child is born by itself is an incredible thing as the body creates this being out of DNA um, that lives a long life is really unbelievable. And by the way, they make the, the that beauty of miracle, as I've learned from the DNA uh, work that was done on building the genomics database, there are imperfections that occur at every stage of that. When a child is born, when they're conceived, you know, all along the way. And, um, and the body has to create um, mechanisms for those imperfections. And sometimes those are good and sometimes those are bad imperfections. That was, uh, that was something that actually changed my view of thinking a little bit this year at the conference. And I'm not sure if it was you that was presenting or who it was presenting at that talk. Um, but they were explaining it in terms of saying, you know, one of the ways that you can almost look at these high risk individuals or high risk infants is not necessarily that, they are born and now we have this person and then they're at a high risk, but rather, you know, there's a huge amount of infants that don't make it all the way to full gestation. And perhaps some of the ones that are at high risk for sudden infant death were the ones that were already at super high risk of not making it to gestation, but they were actually able, you know, they're sort of outliers of those pre-gestational high risk deaths. And then, you know, now, now they're exposed to an extreme amount of other uh, stressors that, that mm-hmm. then puts them over the edge, which was sort of a change my mind, but, um, or it didn't change my mind, changed my way of sort of viewing it. I went, Oh wait, that's a, that's a unique way to look at it. You know, looking at them as outliers, you know, um, <laughs> that of the, of the premies, but, but, you know, so, so what I wanted to, to get that, you know, before, before I let you go too fast here, um, with the, with, so when you're pushing, I guess, population wide, um, agendas in order to educate, in order to create, uh, new data sets, in order to create new, uh, new information that can be used both in the clinic and within the population. What do you think, you know, going forward is the best way for individuals that may not know, um, a, a lot about the problem, but want to actually get involved. They want to learn, they want to get involved. Like what is the best way for someone to do that? You know, if they listen and they say, I'm interested in SIDS and I want to help, how do they do that? Yeah, you know, we we run um, this summit every year, and each year we've seen more and more researchers, um, data scientists come and ask that same question: How do I get involved? You know, um, you know, and it starts with understanding the problem. You know, if you can't understand the problem, you really kind of can't sign, solve the problem. And I love what you did. Hey, look, I just went and looked it up, and I tried to understand it and what they're trying to do. Um, we publish, you know, every, not as an entity, but each organization publishes their own research that are associated with it. But reach out, go to www.givetostopsids or go to the Aaron Matthew SIDS Research Guild site. Send me an email directly at john at johncahan.com. Um, and I'll get you engaged in any part of this process that you're interested in. Um, you know, my wife and I have devoted our lives to ensuring that no parent ever loses a child again. And me personally, 
I'm trying to use my skills, um, which is about opening up data for societal good. And I don't think there's anything more important than the health and well-being of a child. And so for me, this is, you know, this is what I do for life. I mean, this is important. This is the gift my son gave me. So reach out. You know, there are lots of different ways to get involved here. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're a researcher. I mean, you could, you know, be a parent that just cares. I mean, we have parents that never had a problem with their children and they're helping build the websites. They're helping do the communications. They're helping make sure that the researchers are connected to each other. They're, you know, there are lots of people along the way that have engaged along the way to be able to help. And this is a journey that takes, you know, forgive the analogy, but it does take a bit of an army to pull it together. I mean, my wife and I fund all of the overhead associated with this. I don't believe in charities where you give them the money and 60% of it goes to overhead. There is no overhead in Aaron Matthews Sitz research work. We, we not only donate everything that is um, given in both um, dollars and uh, time, but we try to match it up to a certain amount of money that uh, we can and, uh, and continue to do that. Because we know like researchers need to get paid as do data scientists and others associated with it. And so that's how I think people can get involved. I think it's important to be involved. Um, you know, I also think it's important to educate and to communicate because the more people that are communicating and understanding, the more that our children have a face and that, um, and that there is uh, time and energy put to ensure it doesn't happen again. Is there, um, you know, going, going forward, what do you envision or is there any, you know, specific partnerships, collaborations that you're excited about that are, you know, coming forward and, and, um, you know, what gives you hope, I guess, as far as going, going forward with the information that we have now, and then now with, you know, these access to higher level tools that are being implemented to the masses. Yeah, I, you know, I think there are a number of things that, first of all, I'm a tech and data junkie, as you know, like I love the, yeah. the technology, but I don't love it for technology's sake. I love it because it actually solves and improves um, uh, problems. Um, I'm very excited about the large language models that are coming out. I particularly, and I'm not trying to do a commercial for Bing, but I particularly <laughs> like the way they implemented it because you understand the sources that it occurred. And more importantly, um, it go, uses its relevance engine. So it doesn't go against um, untrusted sources of health data. So I love the data science that's occurring and the AI that's occurring in the world right now. It will unlock things that we have not seen before, not just in language research, in, in language studies, but the genetics work that we're doing with millions and millions and trillions of data points. I mean, this is large scale data and understanding you know, we've known for a long time that the things that we see in epidemiology and physiology and even behavioral change would either show up in or not show up in genetics. Um, but being able to mine that size of data takes a very specialized set of skills, large scale computing. Um, and finally, we're starting to unlock the ability to do that, not just with large language models, but just with pure AI, the ability to do machine learning at scale. And so I'm very bullish and very excited about the genetics work that we're trying to do and the cost structures, the ability to do it at scale as costs are dropping dramatically. When I first started Dr. Ramirez, I think it costs about $5,000 to do a single sequencing. It's down now less than $1,000 per child and what we're trying to do. I mean, you're talking about five factor reduction in cost um, just over a couple of year period. And we continue to see the, the uh, cost coming out of the equation. 
And that's important because the reality is we want to get to a point where every child has a record in that database where we learn from the DNA of every child that's lived and hopefully have fewer and fewer ones that die and they can help prevent another child's death in the future. So I'm very excited about the technology, the cloud resources we have, the AI that's occurring. And I don't just mean the large language models, but the ability to do it at scale, um, the genomics work, the ability to do sequencing at much lower costs than we've done in the past. Um, we've seen real massive breakthroughs the last couple of years in those areas, and we're starting to see it come out in the research. And I think you'll see it speed up at a level that is exponential over the next couple of years. And I say that not lightly. As many of you know, uh, the business folks know and the scientists know, there's not too many exponential curves. I think you'll see that in this case. And I, you know, I think that's a testament, though, to how bringing in some of the um, the experts in data science, data management technology, and influencing it into the scientific world is really putting a, a big push. And I, and I, I'm here for it. And I, I, like you said, I'm bullish. I'm bullish on incorporating that more into science. I think sometimes giving a little kick on the caboose to to get published, to get the data out, is um, a good thing. And I think now that that's starting to happen, so. John, I wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been super special. Just as your landscapers were coming by, I'm having the uh, the vacuum cleaners go by on the outside. <laughs> on the outside, but I'm so sorry um, about that. <laughs> no, no, just a, it's a it's a Friday. That's how it works. <laughs> but uh, for the listeners, uh, if you want to listen more, rss.com/slash neural network. Uh, we're on all the different social platforms: Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, TikTok, anything that you can think of, and same with any of the podcast players. So, John, thank you again so much for taking your time out on a Friday to educate us on the the problem of SIDS and how you can implement data science and how your your efforts in particular have been um, very very bullish on pushing this through. And um, like I said, I'm a, I'm a big admirer as far as the translational model that you've created. It's sort of the stereotypical. Uh, you know, during the dissertation, you had to come up with some, you know, process where you can implement a, a problem and create a cure and put it to market. And that was certainly, you know, the sort of the the ideal business model. And it's funny because I actually did it on SIDS, but I focused on the the serotonin deficiencies. But then, you know, when I when I joined the Ramirez lab and then you started to go to these conferences, I realized it's much more than just a serotonin deficiency. It's this this whole you know, structure of, of public education and information and characterization of deaths along with the genomic and the physiologic things. And, and it sort of opened my eyes as to how you can take even different problems. So like right now, my research is focused on opioids and, op and countermeasures towards the opioid overdose. And it's, you know, it's not just figuring out what you can give. It's how you can educate, how you can bring out different things in public policy. And it changed my, my view on translational research. So I do have to commend you for, for that. Thank you. Well, <laughs> so, thank you. And thank you and all your listeners. Get involved. It's important. <laughs>